Open up to Acts chapter 4. We want to look at verses Acts 4.32 to 5.16. For a sermon I've entitled, Fellowship, Fraud, and Fear. So it's going to be Acts 4.32 to 5.16, and here's what it says. And the congregation of those who believed were of one heart and soul, and not one of them claimed that anything belonging to him was his own, but all things were common property to them. And with great power, the apostles were giving testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and abundant grace was upon them all. For there was not a needy person among them, for all who were owners of land or houses would sell them and bring the proceeds of their sale and lay them at the apostles' feet, and they would uh, distribute each as they had need. Now Joseph, a Levite of Cyprian birth, who was also called Barnabas by the apostles, which translated means son of encouragement, and he, uh, he owned a tract of land. He sold it and brought it, the money, and laid it at the apostles' feet. But a man named Ananias, along with his wife Sapphira, sold a piece of property and kept back some of the price for himself with his wife's full knowledge, bringing the portion, only a portion of it. He laid it at the apostles' feet. But Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and keep back some of the price of the land? While it remained unsold, did it not, <clears throat> was it not your own? And after it was sold, was it not under your control? Why is it that you've conceived this deed in your heart? You've not lied to men, but to God. And as he heard these words, Ananias fell down and breathed his last, and great fear came over all who heard it. The young men got up and covered him, and afterwards carried him out and buried him. Now there elapsed an interval of about three hours, and his wife came in, not knowing what had happened. And Peter responded to her, Tell me whether you sold uh, your land for such and such a price. And she said, Yes, that's the price. Then Peter said to her, Why is it that you have agreed together to put the Spirit of the Lord to the test? Behold, the feet of those who buried your husband at the, are at the door, and they will also carry you out as well. And immediately she fell at uh, his feet and breathed her last. And the young men carried in... Uh, uh, the young men came in and found her dead, and they carried her out and buried her beside her husband. And great fear came over the whole congregation uh, of those who had heard these things. At the hands of the apostles, many signs and wonders were taking place among them, uh, people, and they were all in one accord in Solomon's uh, portico. But none of the rest dared to associate with them. However, the people were, uh, held them in high esteem. And all the more believers in the Lord Multitudes of men and women were constantly added to their number to such an extent that they even carried the sick out into the streets and laid them on cots and pallets so that when Peter came by, at least his shadow might fall on them. And uh, also the people from the cities in the vicinity of Jerusalem were coming together, bringing people who were sick and afflicted with unclean spirits, and they were all being healed. Back in 1988, the evangelical world was rocked by two scandals related to popular TV ministries. The first one involved Jim and Tammy Baker, who hosted a program called PTL, Praise the Lord, which adopted a talk show format where they interviewed guests and had well-known Christian singers perform. Now, Jim and Tammy both graduated from North Central Bible College down in the Twin Cities, and they got their work uh, started in uh, working for Pat Robertson on the 700 Club. But later, media mogul Ted Turner offered them their own program, airing first on local stations. It eventually increased to being watched by millions and millions of people. Well, if you have millions and millions of viewers and only a fraction of them send in money, you're going to have millions and millions of dollars. And PTL brought in $1 million per week. 
And Jim and Tammy used some of that money to build a 2,500-acre Christian theme park, kind of like a Disneyland. They called it Heritage USA. Listen to what it had, according to the Wikipedia article. It said the facility included a 501-room grand hotel, an indoor shopping complex, the Heritage Village Church, a 400-unit campground, the Jerusalem Amphitheater, conference facilities, a skating rink, prayer and counseling services, full cable television network production studios, Bible and evangelism schools, visitor retreat housing, staff and volunteer housing, timeshares, and the Heritage Island water park and recreational facilities. It employed 2,500 people. Did the bakers believe in the health and wealth gospel that they preached? (laughs) They certainly did. You know, Tammy Baker was a known for crying on every program, but she never cried about the money situation. Well, the scandal involved not only money, but also sex. Jim Baker had a sexual encounter with a young woman who worked for him. And a longtime friend of Baker's threatened to uh, come public with the information unless he gave him money, so he gave into the blackmail. Around that same time, the Charlotte Observer newspaper began to investigate reports on their ministry finances, and that's when they learned and broke the story about the affair. Now, eventually, the police got involved, and Jim Baker was charged with 24 counts of fraud and conspiracy related to uh, selling timeshares for his resort hotel. He was convicted and sentenced to 45 years in prison, but they let him out after five. He and his wife, Tammy, uh, divorced and both remarried. Tammy Baker later became a spokesman and a supporter for gay rights. She died of cancer on July 20th, 2007, one day after appearing on the Larry King program. Jim Baker, after serving his time, came out, wrote a book called I Was Wrong, and went back to ministry. Now, the other scandal in 1988 involved an evangelist named Jimmy Swaggart. Uh, Swaggart, like uh, Jim Baker, was part of the Assembly of God Church, and he hailed from Louisiana. Uh, He was not only a preacher, and he was also a singer. As a matter of fact, he actually had an interesting background. One of his cousins was Jerry Lee Lewis, the early rock and roll singer, and another was Mickey Gillis, the um, country western singer. But at a time when Jerry Lee Lewis was making $20,000 a week, uh, Jimmy Swaggart was struggling on just $30 a week. Too poor to own a home, he stayed in church basements and motels and pastor's homes as he traveled around. Well, Swaggart didn't stay poor. After finding some success in radio ministry, he started a TV ministry. And by 1985, his programs were being broadcast on 250 stations. Well, Jimmy Swaggart's downfall involved not only sex, but hypocrisy. In 1986, he exposed a fellow pastor, Marvin Gorman, who had several affairs. But in retaliation, Gorman hired his son-in-law to stake out a hotel room that was being used by a prostitute to ply her trade. Using a telephoto lens, Gorman arrived a short time later and then confront, uh, took pictures of uh, Jimmy Swaggart going in, and then they confronted him afterwards. And he told him if he did not go on television and say that he had lied about the whole thing, that he would expose him. Well, about a year went by and he hadn't said anything, so he did just that. The denomination got involved. They suspended Swaggart for ministry for three months and later extended that to two years. After the first suspension ended, Swaggart came on his television program and gave his tearful, I have sinned speech. His audience might have bought it, but the denomination didn't. They defrocked him. Well, that didn't stop Jimmy uh, Swaggart. He simply became independent. But a few years later, the televangelist was caught with another prostitute. But by this time, uh, he, there was no tearful apology. 
He simply told those at his family worship center church, the Lord told me that it's flat out none of your business. Well, 30 years have passed and Jimmy Swigert is still in ministry. He's very popular in South America and his son Donnie, who's joined him, will take over when he's gone. Now, the church has been plagued by scandals throughout the centuries. Indeed, the very first scandal is found in our text this morning. For at a time when the church was experiencing wonderful fellowship and evangelistic success, the devil incited a man and his wife to lie about the amount of money they had given to the church. Their hypocrisy was not only denounced, but it ultimately cost them their lives. Because I want us to see the seriousness with which God takes sin in the church, we want to look at this passage to see what it has for us today. So let's pray and get in the text. Our Father and God, I pray for grace and mercy as we look at this. Help us to see this is a, a very dramatic proof of your concern for the holiness of your son's church, but we don't want to have that same concern as well. So bless us now, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I think we can outline this sermon using three words, the words in my title. You can use the words fellowship, fraud, and fear. So the first thing is the fellowship that they experienced, and that's in 4, 32 to 36. Secondly, the fraud that was committed, that's in 5, 1 to 10. And finally, the fear that resulted and that's an 11 to 16. The fellowship that was experienced. We are one in the Spirit. We are one in the Lord. We are one in the Spirit. We are one in the Lord. And we pray that our unity may someday be restored and they'll know we are Christians by our love. By our love. Yes, they'll know we are Christians by our love. We're living in a time in America where there's deep divisions and people seem to be at each other's throats when it comes to political and social issues. I mean, today where you shop, what you wear, and even what kind of beer you drink is a political statement. Well, Christians have been divided many times, sometimes over serious doctrinal and moral issues, other times just a matter of preference rather than foundational issues. Here we have in this first section a picture of the church characterized by both unity and generosity where the early believers lived out lives of self-sacrificing love. We see again in verse 32, it says this, In the congregation, those who believed were of one mind, or one heart and soul, and not one of them claimed anything belonging to him was his own, but they all were with common property. And with great power, the apostles were giving testimony to the resurrection of Jesus Christ, and abundant grace was upon them all. For there was not a needy person among them, for all who were owners of land and houses would sell them and bring the proceeds of the sale and they laid them at the apostles' feet and they would be distributed to each as he had need. Now it's difficult to get members of even one family or the people in an office to get together and get along. But here we're told that the whole congregation was of one heart and one mind. I listened to a Jewish rabbi once say that if you have two Jews, you'll always have three opinions at least. I heard a guy who was an Israeli businessman said that it's tough to run a business in Israel because everybody thinks they're the boss. Well, the truth is it's hard to get people to get along and work together smoothly for any common goal. But the early believers here were not only united in the work of getting the gospel out, but they were willing to make real sacrifices to make sure that people were cared for. Now, I have to say, as I mentioned a couple weeks ago when this came up before, that a lot of people have used this passage to justify socialism or communism. I mean, they point out that the advocates of this system say this. They say, look, not one of them claimed that anything belonging to him was his own, but they had all things as common property. Now, a number of things have to be said about this. First of all, it was voluntary. It wasn't coerced. 
These people were motivated by love, not by envy or resentment that somebody else had more than they did. Number two, nowhere in the Bible are Christians commanded to redistribute their wealth. And even in the Old Testament, where God made provisions for farmers where they were to allow for gleanings, where after they went through the field the first time, that which had fallen and that which wasn't quite ripe could be harvested by any poor person who came in. Even in that case where it was commanded, there was no penalty if you did not do it. The reason is, is because God wants charity to be given from the heart. If it's coerced, by definition, it's not charity. Third thing I have to say is the Bible acknowledges and upholds the right of private property everywhere. The command that says thou shalt not steal assumes that a person can have something that nobody else has the right to take from them. And the fourth is when these Christians did sell their property and give money to the poor, it did, they did so as the needs arise. So politicians in our country often speak of the social safety net. But honestly, folks, for some people it's become a hammock to allow them to eat their bread, not by the sweat of their own brow, but by the sweat of somebody else's. I remember seeing a bumper sticker. Perhaps you've seen this one as well. Work hard at your job today because your neighbor is counting on your paycheck. Well, to live off the labors of another when you're capable of supporting yourself is actually a form of theft. Paul wrote in Ephesians 4.28, He who steals must steal no longer, but rather he must labor performing with his own hands what is good so that he will have something to share with those who are in need. Now, with all those caveats being said, it's still true and impressive that these early Christians were so self-sacrificing and generous as they were. No doubt they had already internalized the teaching of Jesus who said, do not store for yourself treasures on heaven, in he uh, on earth, where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal, but store up for yourself treasure in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroy and where thieves cannot break in and steal. One particularly impressive example of this generosity that Luke gives is found in verse 36 and 37 when he says this, Now Joseph, a Levite of Cyprian birth, who was also called Barnabas by the apostles, which translated means son of encouragement, he owned a tract of land and sold it and brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. By the way, this is the same man who later would become a traveling companion with the apostle Paul. Well, this is a beautiful picture of Christian fellowship as believers work together to spread the gospel message, a message that the devil opposes, as we're going to see, in the next section. That brings us to the second point, the fraud that was committed. And this is verses 5, or chapter 5, 1 to 10. By the way, do you remember the name Bertie Madoff? By the way, if ever a guy was named rightly, it was Bertie Madoff. Because he made off with $64 billion that he bilked out of investors. Of course, that compa uh, pales compared to what the pharmaceutical companies have made in connection with the government as they have conned the American people into uh, taking their near worthless vaccines. It's come out just in the last month that these companies knew two months after they put out the products that they didn't actually stop the spread of the disease nor keep people from getting it. Well, what's a little truth being compromised on when matters of billions of dollars are at stake? Well, when Paul gave a list of unrighteous behaviors that would keep people from inheriting the kingdom of God, he said things like this, neither fornicators nor idolaters, nor adulterers nor the effeminate, nor homosexuals, nor thieves, nor covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers. Listen to this one. Nor swindlers shall inherit the kingdom of God. 1 Corinthians 6, 9 to 10. Well, here the conspiracy didn't involve a government or big business, but a married couple. Look what it says starting in verse uh, 1 and 2 of chapter 5. It says, But a man named Ananias with his wife Sapphira sold a piece of property and kept it back the price for himself, some of it, uh, with his wife's full knowledge. And bringing a portion of it, he laid it at the apostles' feet. Now, the Britannica 
Dictionary defines conspiracy as a secret plan where two or more people uh, intend to do something harmful or illegal. And by that definition, this couple was certainly involved in a conspiracy, one that was illegal according to God's law and one that would prove harmful to the church and ultimately deadly to themselves. But here's the question. Why did they do it? I mean, it wasn't greed. They were giving money away, not taking it in. It wasn't for tax purposes. It's not likely it was an accounting error. The House Oversight Committee says that they have bank records that show that nine members of the Biden family have received $10 million from foreign companies, some with connections to the Chinese government. The president's brother, his son, his ex, son's ex-wife, his present daughter-in-law, another daughter-in-law, even grandchildren allegedly received payments. Nobody knows exactly what for. Kind of sounds suspicious, doesn't it? Now, defenders of the president say that even if it's true, President Biden had no knowledge of it. Now, that might be the case. But it seems a lot of things the president is not aware of. But Sapphira wasn't kept outside the loop. She was in on it from the beginning. Now, I'm sure when Ananias laid the money from the proceeds of the sale of his property at the feet of the apostles, everybody smiled and was thinking, wow, what a generous man. God certainly has done a work of grace in his life. But the Bible says that the Lord, man looks at the outside, but the, God looks at the heart. And the Holy Spirit who saw the heart revealed to Peter the true heart condition of Ananias. In verse 3, we see Peter confront the hypocrite when he says this, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and keep back some of the price of the land? While it remained unsold, didn't it remain your own? And after you sold it, was it not under your control? Why is it that you've conceived this deed in your heart? You have not lied to men, but to God. Oh, can you imagine going to the doctor for a heart scan? He brings back the image prints. And he says, hey, you got a little bit of blockage and some calcium buildup. But what really concerns me is you have some Satan deposits in your heart, which are causing you to lie. By the way, again, note that Peter said that the property was his to do whatever he wanted with it. He could have sold it or not sold it. Didn't make any difference. Hey, Ananias, it's your property. Whether you give all of it, some of it, or none of it, it's between you and the Lord. But when you come here to the church and lie about the amount that you gave because you're more concerned about looking good than being good, that's hypocrisy. It's poison to the fellowship and lying to the Holy Spirit. It's a serious, deadly matter. And as he heard these words, Ananias fell down and breathed his last, and a great fear came over all who heard it. The young men got up, covered him up, and carried him out, and they buried him. Now, the critical commentators respond to this in one of two ways. Either they say, well, this was some kind of a psychosomatic phenomena. You know, he died of embarrassment, pun intended. <laughs> or they, they recognize that the death came from God, but then they complain that somehow it was overkill, pun also intended. Why would God respond this way? Better yet, why would they respond that way? I think it's because they sympathize with the people in the story who committed the crime rather than the holiness of God. In other words, they don't think lying is that big of a deal. Many of you watch Ray Comfort, a Christian evangelist, as he goes around interviewing people. You can see him on YouTube. He always starts by asking the person if they think they're a good person. And almost everyone says yes. He then tells them, well, I'm going to take you through the Ten Commandments, which you do as a test, and I want you to evaluate yourself 
and compare yourself to the Ten Commandments. So the first question he always starts with is this. How many lies do you think you've told in your lifetime? And almost without exception, the person goes, whoa, too many to count. Sometimes you get, well, a few, or a few white lies. But you know, the Bible tells us that God is a God of truth. Lying is not a small sin, and especially when it's done in the context of the church. Now, the people in this church had a quick funeral for Ananias, one his wife did not attend. No matter, because she was going to be attending another funeral in a short time. For we read in verse 7, Now there elapsed an interval of about three hours, and his wife came in, not knowing what had happened. And Peter responded to her, Tell me whether you sold this land for such and such a price. And she said, Yes, that, that was the price. And Peter said to her, Why is it you've agreed to put the Spirit of the Lord to the test? Behold, the feet of those who buried your husband are at the door, and they're going to carry you out as well. And immediately she fell at his feet and breathed her last. And the young man came in and found her dead, and they carried her out and buried her beside her husband. By the way, what do you put on their tombstone? Here lies a couple of liars? Okay, here's a question that's really worth pondering. Ananias and Sapphira, were they genuine believers or not? Some commentators say yes. Others say no. The text doesn't tell us one way or another. If they were not real believers, then the lesson we should draw from it is the devil can plant tares among the wheat, goats among the sheep, even in the earliest church. On the other hand, perhaps they were genuine believers. Satan could have put it into their minds, this couple to conspire and lie, just as he did Peter, when Peter turned to Jesus and said, God forbid it, Lord, that you should go up and be crucified. When Jesus told him that that's exactly what he was going to do. You remember what Jesus said in response? He said, get behind me, Satan. You're a stumbling block to me, for you are not setting your mind on God's interests, but on man's. So I don't know whether these two were actually saved or not, but either way, it should put fear in the hearts of God's people, which is exactly what it did on that day, as we see in the next section. Okay, the fear that resulted. This is 11 to 16. By the way, can you think of any time in your life when you experienced extreme, almost paralyzing fear? I can only think of two occasions for me. One time I got a call at 1 a.m. in the morning from a man who I had been doing counseling with him and his wife. They were having problems in their marriage. They were heading for divorce. The man told me through tears that his wife was dead. I told him, I'll be right there. He didn't tell me how she died. And so on the way over there, I started thinking, did he kill her? What am I going to find? And I remember looking down at my hands on the steering wheel and they were shaking like this. I got there and found out she had died in a car accident. Another time I was going home to my parents' house after work, it's three o'clock in the morning. As I drove by a field near them, I saw a car out in the field flipped over on the top. And as I drove by, I thought that's odd. And then I looked kind of backwards and I noticed the dome light was still on. I thought, I wonder if there's somebody in there. So I turned around, I drove back, I started walking up there, it's kind of shaky just from that, and then I saw a body in the car. Walked up, just pounding, and I said, are you okay, are you okay? Oh, dude, what happened? Oh man, I don't know what's, where am I? The guy was higher than a kite. Got him out of the car, put him in mine, took him to a friend's house. I didn't know that you're supposed to call the cops and report it at the time, so maybe they're still looking for him. I don't know. 
Well, remarking on this passage, an old country preacher named Vance Havner once quipped that if God still dealt with the church today in the same way that he dealt with in the days of Ananias and Sapphira, we'd have to have a morgue in every basement. Well, God is patient and long-suffering. And so he doesn't always deal so swiftly with lying and hypocrisy in the church, but he hates it no less today than he did then. And he dealt with it swiftly and harshly at that time to give an example of just how seriously he takes sin within the church. And here the intended purpose of their death was achieved because it says in verse 11, And great fear came upon the whole church and over all who heard of these things. By the way, I had a teacher when I was at college, Jack Smith. He was a a pastor at a church. And there was one guy in the church, I believe it was a deacon, was just causing trouble, 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 all this trouble. It was always, you know, cantankerous and everything. And one time when they were in some kind of a board meeting, one of the ladies in the church, an older lady, said, You don't stop that right now. God's going to take your life. Jack Smith said, I buried that man four days later. Wow. Well, this was a wake-up call to the church on the importance of sincerity and honesty within the fellowship of the believers. And while this was a dramatic and traumatic event, it didn't stop the church from going forward in its missions. Look what it says in verse 12. It says, At the hands of the apostles, many signs and wonders were taking place among the people, and they were with one accord in Solomon's portico. But none of them dared to associate with them. (laughs) I wonder why. However, the people held them in high esteem. And all the more, the believers in the Lord, multitudes of men and women, were constantly being added to their number to the extent that even those carried uh, sick into the street and laid on cots and pallets so that Peter when he came by, at least the shadow would fall on him, and anyone who did was healed. Also, the people from the cities and the vicinities of Jerusalem were coming together, bringing people who were sick or afflicted with unclean spirits, and they all were being healed. Remember that after Peter and John was arrested, they went back to the other believers and they prayed and asked God for two things, that they would have boldness in preaching the gospel, and secondly, that he would attend their preaching through signs and miracles, both of which were obviously answered here. Jesus said, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. That's proved true not only in this generation, in the book of Acts, but in every generation since then. Well, what lessons should we draw from this story as we close? Well, here's the first one. God expects us to do whatever we can to maintain, deepen, and widen the fellowship in the church. You know, people talk about getting essential nutrients. What's, what's the rage now? You've got to get your essential oils. As humans, God created us to be social creatures. Everyone needs human contact, and people who don't get it end up withering and dying. Have you ever thought about the fact that the worst punishment they give you in prison is to put you in isolation, solitary confinement? Listen carefully. Non-Christians are fundamentally self-centered, meaning centering on self rather than God. So when it comes to relationships, they think about what I can get out of it rather than what I put into it. So they're, they're kind of like porcupines shivering on a cold night. They, they come together for warmth, but they're always pricking and sticking each other when they do. I mean, if you're a Christian, you need to spend time with and be involved in the lives of other Christians. Larry Crabb was a longtime psychologist. I practiced for about 30, 40 years. Died just a few years back. And uh, one of the books I just recently bought of his is called Connection. He said, after doing 30 years of ministry, of psychological ministry, he realized that most of the best psychological work that was done of healing was just simply by people being in church and connecting with each other. 
He said for him it was just a giant paradigm, paradigm shift. See, that's, that's why it's important that you connect with other believers. That's why we have a church fellowship time. It's not just because we like to serve people cookies. It's a weird thing. When people eat, they'll talk. That's why we encourage people to stay for Sunday school. That's why when you sit down for Sunday school, you tend to sit at the same tables and every now and then I say, hey, why don't you sit over here and you sit over here and you sit. Because even a church as small as ours, it's amazing how people tend to sit with the same people every time. That's why we have uh, Bible studies. Because the Bible study is not like a Sunday school class. A Sunday school class, you only got so much time. You can't share your stories. A Bible uh, study, you can. That's why we have prayer groups, because you'll never connect closer with a person than that. Second thing I think we have to save as a lesson here is that God takes sin very seriously in the church. Read Jesus' words to the various churches found in the book of Revelation. Some he gives commendations to, others he gives stinging rebukes to. Some he gives both. All the rebukes are connected to the church's toleration of sin and false doctrine. Jesus is not only concerned that the church grows in numbers, but also that it grows in holiness. And here's the last lesson. Even when God brings discipline to the church, it's for our own good and growth. Two people here died as a result of their sins, but the whole church was brought to a greater fear and reverence of God, something which is sorely missing in the American church today. Fellowship, that's what we should foster. Fraud, that's what we want to avoid. And fear, Ecclesiastes 12, 13 to 14 says, Fear God and keep his commandments because this applies to every man. For God will bring every act into judgment, everything which is hidden, whether good or evil. May each of us do our part to make the church pleasing to God. Let's pray. Our Father and God, this is a dramatic story. What did people think when they heard that both of them died in the same day? No wonder they were terrified. But the Bible says that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. The knowledge of the Holy One is understanding. We want to have a proper respect for you, Lord, when we come to worship, but we also come to hear from your word so that we can learn and be transformed. So, Father God, I pray for grace for us. I pray that we would do what's necessary to maintain the unity of the church and to deepen its fellowship so that we can find great joy not only in you, but in being with your people. So bless us now to that end, for we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.